listening to Adopted Feels with Hannah and Ryan, a podcast on anything and everything adoption related. Today we're in for a treat, if I can say so myself. An outcome of some gentle encouragement from me, Hannah has written a beautiful account of her Korean language learning journey thus far. In the loose form of a listicle, because we can't resist a good list on this podcast, here's 10 lessons Hannah has learned about, well, learning one's original language as an adoptee, how it differs from learning a foreign language as a hobby, the frustrations and joys, the pressures, there are many, as well as the rewards. And of course, on brand, this episode gets deep into some feels. I'm three and a half when I'm adopted. My Australian parents tell me that I was prattling away in rapid Korean for the first few weeks after I arrived, until I didn't. It only took me a few weeks to replace one language with another, they said, just as one family, culture, life, you know, all of it, was replaced with another. I like to think that I was smart and learned things quickly, but I also know that it was just survival. How are you supposed to eat if you can't tell your parents that you're hungry? I don't know exactly how much Korean language I had at that age, but it may have been more than I have now. My pronunciation was surely better too, my intonation more natural. This used to upset me after so many hours, so many years of study, albeit inconsistent. But now I'm used to failing at Korean. I'm used to being a poor student. I'm getting used to the ambiguity of loosely cradling an end goal that seems so far away and sometimes impossible that I'm not even sure that I can call it a goal. Here's a story that I've told so many times now that it has almost become a cliche. I'm sorry if you've heard it before. I don't know exactly how much Korean I had when I was adopted, but I had the following words at least. Imo haraboji, don't leave me here. I'll be a good girl. These words haunted my Imo haraboji, my grandmother's sister's husband, for long enough that I could hear them recounted to me through an interpreter when I reunited with my Korean family. Though I'm not sure exactly how I said them, of course, or if I even want to remember, when I first heard these translated words, they just made sense, floating downwards into my chest and fitting neatly on top of the imprint on my heart like a traced image. Sometimes I wonder if I would remember that moment and others from my pre-adopted life if I hadn't lost my mother tongue. I wonder how memory is confined by language, how trauma suppresses memory, and if trauma then becomes an additional barrier to recovering that language. This all makes sense, though then I ask myself if I'm just making excuses for my lack of progress. As ever, I oscillate between being kind and forgiving and being harsh and critical towards myself as I continue on this language learning path. By five years old, my Korean is definitely lost. I am sitting on a beanbag in the living room, listening to a Korean audiobook while turning the pages of the accompanying picture book under my parents' gaze. As young as I am, I can feel that they hope I can still understand something, and part of me wants to fulfill this desire. Like so many fairy tales, there is a bad wolf in this story. In one illustration, his stomach is filled with stones and sewn up with a needle and thread. The sounds wash over me and fall away like rubble. 
Around this time, my parents take me to a Korean language class in the city of Launceston, about 45 minutes away. There are Koreans even in northwest Tasmania in the early 90s, and of course they can be found at a Korean church. We are practicing the Hangul alphabet in notebooks with large squares, but I hate being there. I feel like being there might reinforce my differences, of which I am already acutely aware. Like I might catch something extra weird and different from being amongst other Koreans. So I deliberately skew the right angles of the letters with each iteration. And by the time the teacher makes her way around the room and circles back to me, she shakes her head furiously. I'm introduced to another adopted child there, a little girl about the same age as me. She wears a pink coat with a matching hair ribbon in her long hair, and her shoes are patent black. She is like a neat, shiny version of me. I also meet a few other Korean kids in the back room of the church who don't seem to be taking the classes. We talk about swimming, and they ask me if I can do butterfly stroke. I don't even know what that is, but I say yes, and their eyes widen. I think I want to impress them maybe even be friends with them, but I won't be ready to mix with other Koreans for another 20 years. I don't return to the Korean language until the age of 26, after my first trip back to Korea. I take a beginner class once a week at the Center for Adult Education. The other students are just taking the class for fun, and I'm the only person with Korean heritage, which I should have guessed, but it still takes me by surprise. I learned my first lesson here. The other Asian students are better at Korean than me. They do not study and yet they are streets ahead. Sometimes they pick up new vocabulary quickly, recognizing words based on hanja. I also make my first Asian friends here, mostly international students, and they introduce me to hot pot and karaoke and Asian grocery stores for the first time. I do not feel like I quite belong with them, but they accept me fully. I've never watched a Korean drama before, so my new friend Lee Jun writes down her top five recommendations on a post-it note, including classics such as Coffee Prince and My Name is Kim Samsun. Hangul is a logical set of 40 letters. I've since seen various guides on the internet, such as How to Read Hangul Fast or Learn Hangul in 20 Minutes. No, it takes me months. Maybe I'm slow, I don't know. The sounds roll around awkwardly in my mouth, like hard, oversized candies. Fast forward a few years. In my early 30s, I get a scholarship to study Korean at an intensive university program, four hours a day, five days a week, in Seoul, for nine months. I'm not particularly passionate about studying Korean, but it's a low-pressure way for me to try out living in Korea. The scholarship stipulates that I have to attend one of the three so-called Sky Universities, so I choose Yonsei for its location. Lesson 2. Korean school is no joke. In order to keep up with the pace, you have to study. In order to improve, you have to practice. In order to pass the exams, you have to drill the vocabulary and grammar like a goddamn academic subject. Because it is. I learned that intensive Korean class is like a full-time unpaid job. The Yonsei course focuses heavily on reading, writing and grammar, 
with a pedagogy based on rote learning and repetition. It's not the most enjoyable learning experience. You're getting an insight into the Korean education system, and that will help you understand Koreans more, another adoptee tells me. As with many other things in this country, I come with my Western supremacist lens and judge it. Because I've taken various beginner-level Korean classes about three times already now, and I'm in the slower, easier class for people from Western countries, with a little study, I managed to get high grades, which grant me a full scholarship for the next level. I take the money I had set aside for class and visit Japan and drink lemon sours and go to Disney Sea. As I progress to level two at Yonsei and then switch to Korea University, where I repeat level two in hopes of getting more listening and speaking practice, I can no longer keep up with the material and maintain my daily explorations of Seoul neighborhoods and cute cafes. So I let go. I can't do everything at the same time. Plus, Korea confronts me with my adoption every day. I'm disappointed and angered by my Korean mother's lack of attention now that I live in the same country. And I'm punch drunk with a newfound sense of belonging, which I feel within the adoptee community of Seoul, perhaps for the first time in my 33 years of life. Lesson three, shame. I return to Australia and feel ashamed. I feel ashamed when I meet up with Sarah, a 1.5 generation Korean Australian who arches her eyebrows quizzically when I explain that I still can't speak Korean, even though I've just completed a nine month scholarship program. I feel ashamed when I go to a local Korean class and the young second generation Korean Australian student, the only other student of Korean heritage, is chatting away to the teacher freely and the white Australian partners of Korean women respond with more confidence than me. I feel ashamed, so at some point I stop going to that class. I stop studying Korean altogether and forget most of what I learned at school in Seoul. I will have many more moments of shame, particularly triggered by Hyopo's. When I move back to Korea, my second generation Korean American team manager will repeatedly bring up my Korean ability as something severely lacking that could be improved dramatically if I just put in the effort. And I will want to both point out that she doesn't understand, having lived with her Korean parents for her whole life and even now, and also punch her in the face. But instead, I clench my jaw and nod. I know that it is technically not my fault that my mother tongue was taken by a billion-dollar industry called international adoption, but the sense of personal failure as a Korean who cannot speak Korean persists. I still do not speak. It will take me another few years to even begin to speak. I moved back to Korea, and two years later, after leaving my company job, I decide to fulfill my long-held desire of studying at Sogang University, known for its focus on speaking. I review the level two grammar before the level placement test, and I'm thrilled to get into level three. The intensive university courses each have six main levels, which leads me to believe, naively, that you can reach some kind of fluency if only you complete all six. I know other adoptees who have studied at Sogang who speak enviably well, including one friend who only completed level three. 
all of this builds a completely unrealistic idea of what Sogang will do for me and leads to lesson four. There is no one guaranteed magical path and the level of your Korean class may be wholly unrelated to your actual ability. I re-enter the classroom excited to have the opportunity to improve my Korean again, but I'm still not a passionate student. Unlike my classmates, mostly in their early to mid-twenties and fueled by a love for BTS or Korean dramas or a Korean partner, I'm studying partly due to a sense of obligation. As an adoptee in reunion for over 10 years, who should speak more Korean by now. It is also a last-ditch effort to improve my skills before I leave the country. Let me take a brief diversion to address a question that I occasionally receive about these university courses. Am I too old to do one of those programs? Asked a podcast listener in their early 30s as well as a sweet 25-year-old adoptee that I recently met during her first trip back to Korea. I am now 37 years old. Have I unwittingly become some kind of motivational old person poster girl for taking intensive Korean classes or for moving to Korea? I'll keep my thoughts concise. It is likely that at some point you will feel old, and sure, that might trigger other uncomfortable feelings such as self-judgment or embarrassment or shame. The real question is, should that stop you if this or anything else is something you really want to do? I hope I don't have to answer that. Lesson five, anxiety. There is a unique personal brand of Korean class anxiety that arises from the beginning of level three and accompanies me until the end of level four. We have new grammar and vocabulary almost daily, and the pressure to keep up feels like being chased by a wave. In the afternoons after class, I feel overwhelmed by how much material I need to review and preview for the next day before I go to my part-time job, so I struggle to focus and procrastinate and then become more anxious. When I can't understand what the teacher is saying or when I have to speak in front of the class, My stomach drops and my cheeks flush and my mind starts darting around in a panic like a fly trying to escape through a glass window, as if that will help. A lot of the pressure is self-induced. What exactly are you afraid of, little anxious part? Maybe she is afraid that despite my best efforts, I will never progress to the extent that I secretly wish to. Maybe she is signalling that this is more important to me than I thought. So she's pushing, always pushing, and trying to protect me from future disappointment. What if there are additional emotional barriers that might make learning Korean more difficult compared to non-adoptees, such as being confronted with what was lost? Or feeling somehow less or lacking as a Korean? Or unconscious resistance due to early traumatic memories? I'm not the first to suggest such things, but still, if I'm being honest, it feels audacious when, of course, learning any foreign language as an adult is difficult, and there are adoptees, though few, who have achieved some kind of fluency. Australian adoptee Stephanie MacDonald, who was an old friend and a bold journalist, wrote an excellent piece for the former Gazillion Voices magazine back in 2015 entitled 
the emotional block of learning Korean. More recently, German-Korean adoptee Jonas Sangshik Ebela echoed similar sentiments about a deeper struggle in his 2021 article for the Korea Times. This struggle is more emotional, he writes. It is the feeling that this language is something that I lost or that was taken away from me and that I will never fully regain. I complete all of level three on Zoom due to COVID, which is exhausting and certainly makes making class friends more difficult. And I struggle to juggle part-time work with study. But nonetheless, through daily immersion, I'm finally pushing past my 10-year beginner-level purgatory into a lower intermediate place, I think. As I approach the level three final exams, I'm feeling strangely confident, invincible even, with good grades for the quizzes and midterms thus far, while also managing to move house, create an online series of writing workshops, and start seeing a new therapist during the semester. I'm only nervous about the final speaking interview, which constitutes 70% of the final speaking grade. At the beginning of the interview, I make the mistake of introducing myself as an adoptee who reunited with my Korean family, which opens me up to questions about the initial reunion that I would struggle to answer in English, let alone Korean. But otherwise, I understand all of the teacher's questions, a definite win, and I managed to get some kind of genuine response out, another win. I finished the brief interview with a huge sense of accomplishment, and I call my best friend, feeling elated. This high lasts until the next day when I review my final grades with the main class teacher. Hanashi, you have worked so hard to study while juggling your part-time job, she begins, and I know this can't be good. In yesterday's speaking interview, my sentences were too short and my grammar was too basic. So I've received A's for reading, writing and listening, but a C plus for speaking. I am quietly devastated. I have never gotten a C in my life, except for one time in middle school when I forgot to put my name on an assignment and the teacher was immediately failing unnamed assignments to set an example. Now I have received a C for something I tried my best at, something that was important to me, and as ridiculous as it may sound, I feel like a failure. Even more ridiculous, I briefly reconsider whether I deserve to go out for the celebratory drinks I have planned, as if I should stay home as some kind of penance. Catholic guilt rears its head again, I suppose, until my therapist firmly encourages me to keep my plans. Lesson six, in order to speak, you have to, well, speak. The gulf between my reading and writing level and my speaking ability remains, despite now, at the time of this recording, having completed two terms at Sogang, where I thought I would finally overcome my fear of speaking. One might assume that living in Korea would provide enough opportunities for practice, but although I've lived here for three years, I spend my days mainly in English. I've relied on it for all of the writing, editing and teaching work that puts food on the table, even during my previous stint at a Korean company, and I speak English with all of my friends. I barely have any Korean friends, and I've never dated a local Korean, though I'm sure that would help immensely, as people love to tell me. 
And this embarrasses me because I feel that making more local connections was expected of me and I have somehow failed in this endeavour. I cannot simply snap my fingers and break out of my foreigner-slash-adoptee community bubble. So in the meantime, I look for language exchange opportunities and recommit myself to watching Korean dramas with dual Korean and English subtitles using a Google Chrome extension. In Level 4, through a class exercise on different types of learning styles, I discover, to no surprise, that I'm more of a Sengakyong, the type of person who thinks before acting, probably too much in my case, and a Sunchahyong, a sequential, detail-oriented learner, as opposed to someone who is big-picture-oriented and takes action before thinking. It occurs to me that in some ways, I'm still an abandoned little girl trying to be good. I'm trying to get good grades. I'm trying not to make mistakes. But I also know that learning a foreign language requires making mistakes. The more mistakes I can make, the faster I can improve. Level four forces me to study like never before. I feel a significant jump from level three and I'm intimidated by the proficiency of some of my classmates, including, for example, a Japanese student who watches hours of Korean dramas a day and mentions that she understands 80 to 90% of the content without subtitles. I begin to learn just how far Korean grammar is from English grammar. There are sentences that I read over and over again and have to plug into a translation app in order to make sense of them, even though I know all the words individually. When I complain to my new Ukrainian friend from class, he laughs at me kindly. This is not his first rodeo, he says. English gave him a lot of headaches too. But tiny victories, albeit few and far between, provide encouragement. I make very, very simple, very, very brief phone calls prefaced with, I'm sorry, I don't speak Korean well, and fumble my way through when years ago I was too afraid to even answer the phone. I chat to someone on Tinder in Korean without stopping to check everything in a translation app, accepting that I'll make grammar and spelling mistakes. I ask a restaurant to hold the ketchup and add extra aioli to my delivery of fish and chips on Kupang Eats. My favorite thrill is when tiny snippets of conversation, like three to four word phrases, not full sentences, fly into my brain and I understand without consciously trying. Upper, we need baking soda to make the Dalgona, overheard in the aisles of Home Plus Supermarket. Or, this year it felt like there was no spring and it went straight to summer, heard amongst the cherry blossom trees in Yoido. Or, good-looking men tend to be dot dot dot, I wish I had heard the rest, as I walked along the Chungichan Lantern Festival. Small wins. And some big ones too. In the break between level three and four, I visit my Korean mother in Jeonju. At one point, we take a walk along a nearby stream together, at her suggestion, just the two of us, for the first time in my 12 years of reunion. The conditions of her life and the conditions of my heart, both slightly easier and more open now than when we first reunited, have converged in such a way to allow this to happen. I know she is speaking more slowly and simply than usual, and as we walk and talk, my comprehension dips in and out, like, 
Yes, yes, got it. Um, fuzzy, kinda, uh, should I stop her? Okay, yes, mostly. I think I got the gist of it. But still, we are communicating directly, and I have the tools, as crude and primitive as they may be, to do so. I pause and feel grateful to live here and catch this moment, and I know that this single conversation alone has made all my study so far worthwhile. And thus, lesson seven, you are doing it. It may not look or feel like what you expected, but you are doing it. You are speaking Korean, which often feels more like surviving the moment in my Danish adoptee friend's apt words. I am not as advanced as I thought I'd be after level four, but I'm on some kind of path and stepping forward still. this point I wonder if I'm boring you but we are almost at the end now. Lesson eight is progress is not linear. In my case it not only plateaus it plummets too when I'm tired or frustrated or lacking confidence. There are still days when I feel back at square one. Just the other week in a little mum and pop Solong Tang restaurant I found myself repeating the question or where is the bathroom, until I was basically yelling just the word to the disgruntled Ajushi, a word I could have picked up from a Lonely Planet guidebook without taking a single Korean class. I guess there's something odd about my intonation or something. Once this may have upset me, now I've learned to shrug it off. Things start to feel hairy midway through level four. I'm stressed all the time and I'm tempted to quit. I start to think that level four is too hard for me and I should have repeated level three instead. In the lead up to exams, I wake up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, my head swirling with thoughts like, have I studied enough? Have I reviewed this or practiced that enough? Until it strikes me that the real question I'm asking is am I enough? I know I'm putting so much pressure on myself, but I don't know how to stop. I want the grades so badly, though I know they mean nothing in the greater scheme of learning Korean. Halfway through level four, I meet my former Korean tutor over Zoom to practice for the midterm speaking exam. At the end of the lesson, looking for some encouragement, I ask her if she thinks I've improved a little since I saw her last, which was months ago, well before I started level three. This is supposed to be a rhetorical question. She grimaces. Well, to be honest, she says, if anything, I think you've gone backwards. A lump rises in my throat. Because you spoke with more confidence then, she explains. I get off the Zoom call and burst into tears. That night, I sit down at dinner with friends and immediately take a straight shot of soju, though I don't particularly like it. I tell an adoptee friend what happened with my Korean tutor, that I'm trying so hard but I feel like a failure, that I'm not sleeping well, that I'm so stressed that my hair is falling out, or I might be imagining that, I don't know. She turns to face me squarely, her eyes big and wet and soft. She's a Scorpio, unfazed by big emotions. She puts a hand on my shoulder. You've already passed, Hannah, she says. You're trying to learn this language that you lost and that's so brave already. 
Lesson number nine, you are enough no matter how much Korean you speak. I want to extend the message that my friend gave me. I want to tell you that you are enough with the Korean or without it, with the grades or without them. I want to tell you that whether you've stepped into a classroom or you've downloaded Duolingo, that's brave. That if you've taken any step at all, that's brave. And I see your courage. I want to tell you that I know that nothing came flooding back, even if you were three or four or five years old when you were adopted. And even if your undergraduate developmental psychology class told you that lost first languages are retained deep in the unconscious brain. I want to tell you that I know that every single word, every grammar pattern was most likely hard-earned, studied and reviewed and forgotten and reviewed again and practiced piece by painstaking piece to etch it into the grey matter. Lesson number 10. However you get there is fine. For the purposes of this story, I almost wish that I had failed level 4 and still managed to hold myself with kindness but somehow I managed to scrape a B plus for my final speaking exam. What I mean by somehow is that I focused almost exclusively on the speaking exam, started working with a different Korean tutor, and sidebar, finding a Korean tutor who suits you, in my experience, can be um, a long journey. And I drilled my pre-prepared responses for every possible question ad nauseum. We have now come to the end of this podcast. I have laid out almost every potentially useful thought I have about learning Korean so far. Learning Korean is the hardest thing I have ever attempted to do. But as frustrating and disheartening as the process has been at times, I realized along the way that I wanted. I want to reclaim this thing that I lost as much as I can, along with so many other things. I dream of being able to play with and within this language, to joke, to rant, to volley. My Korean studies continue. After taking some time to review level four, I recently enrolled in level five. It starts in two weeks. The orientation materials just dropped in my inbox and my heart gave a little tremor. By the time you listen to this episode, I will likely be grappling with the same things again the overwhelm, the anxiety, the fear of failure. Part of me can't believe I'm signing up for this again, but another part is excited to stretch myself just a little further. If you want this too, I hope you will go for it. Know that it won't be easy, but celebrate those small wins, which are not, in fact, small after all. They can be more meaningful than you first imagined. And for my future self and to all adoptees on our respective Korean learning journeys, I wish us patience, all the self-compassion we can muster, and a little faith. Faith that we will all get to some place we want to go, however long it takes, whichever route we take. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Adopted Feels Podcast, or we're on Twitter at Adopted Feels. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. <laughs>